Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. And welcome back to another GeoMob podcast. Today, I'm joined by my good friend Giuseppe Salazzo, otherwise known as Punto Fiso on Twitter. And we're going to be talking about open data and stuff. But before we do talk about that, I just better introduce Giuseppe to those of you who haven't had the pleasure of meeting him. He has a fascinating biography. Born in Italy, he arrived in London in 2008 to start a PhD at Imperial College, but dropped out after a few months. Then he was a senior systems engineer analyst at St. George's University. And while he was at St. George's, he became very involved in the open data movement in London. And for the last year and a bit, Giuseppe has been head of data at the Department for Transport. So that's quite a CV. Um, Giuseppe, <laughs> good morning to you. Good morning, Stephen. Uh, thanks for having me on this podcast. It's a pleasure. So first of all, tell us what you were doing at St. George's. So at St. George's, so I got to St. George's after I quit quite abruptly my, my PhD about six months in. Um, at the time where you know there was a financial crisis going on, there weren't many jobs available. I still wanted to be somehow close to academia uh, for a variety of right and wrong reasons. And, and so, yeah, I found this job as a systems developer at the time, doing a bit of support to the, the server farm uh, and to research computing. Uh, and I, I got promoted over time. And basically, I, I was looking after all the classic systems side of a relatively large medical school. So, you know, emails, calendars, uh, web servers, uh, and also the research computing side of it. So over time, I, I worked on quite exciting things like setting up high-performance computing, as well as still uh, keeping all our services uh, running on time. I was sort of uh, leading our second line of support. So engaging with uh, people having trouble with things ranging from emails not being delivered all the way down to how can I do uh, this heavy type of computation on my uh, proteins in, in on your service. So it was quite a broad set of tasks that I was dealing with and it was quite exciting. But some quite deep geekery there as well from the sounds of things on the research oh, side. Oh, quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's what actually what, what kept me in the job for a long time. The the fact that I was working on this incredibly geeky problems, some of which had to do with, you know, neuroscience or with, you know, uh, just with, with very basic making sure that the Samba shares were working um, while also having, a, you know, a big uh, opportunity to learn new things uh, hands on. I had the, uh, the pleasure of working. My manager was an incredibly uh, technical person who was very keen on, you know, developing people. And I really enjoyed working there for, that's why I stayed there for about 10 years. What's interesting is that one of the reasons why I applied to that job was that I wanted to stay close to academia. I, I still dreamt of at some point going back to a PhD. And, and then I realized over time that uh, what I really liked of the academic life was the ability to work on something, you know, you're passionate about while also having a relationship with people who were very you know, intelligent and, and uh, successful in their field. And I sort of got that through a, a very technical job. So uh, I, I sort of, over time, started thinking, well, maybe it wasn't uh, such a bad idea to move out of uh, being an academic myself. Uh-huh. 
And whilst you were at St George's, you founded Open Data Camp, didn't you? Yeah, although that wasn't my, my first venturing into open data, but you know, it, it's a sort of a convoluted and complex story, which starts with uh, working closely with, with our library, actually, at St. George's. Uh, they, they were working on, you know, that this, this thing called open access at the time. So the idea that papers, academic papers, should be somehow accessible to, to everyone. Uh, and by doing that, you know, we, we started um, thinking on the idea that the data sets of, of the, you know, that triggered the research or that were assembled during the research should also be, be free. Now, all of this was happening, uh, as I said, uh, around 2009, 2010, which is the, the, the period in which that social network called Twitter, so the, the social network to which uh, we met uh, <laughs> at some point, um, was starting to be uh, quite popular in London. And it was starting to be popular in specific networks of people and those networks of people were government people academics and you know overall geeks so it was still a sort of a niche social network with all i think the right people in a sense to uh, on there uh, and open data was starting to be a thing as well um so i, I sort of you know one thing i've always liked to do in in, in my career was actually to connect people and uh, and things from from different areas and and so i saw that connection between uh, the open data that was happening uh, in the government, in, in the public sector, in the government, uh, and the open access uh, happening uh, in academia, and and therefore I, I sort of made that jump. Uh, yeah, I, I found that open data was an interesting community of people, and after a while, together with Mark Brackins, who was at the time uh, working in a local authority, we started thinking, well, we we might need a way to get all these people together in in a room to to, to make them engage in a sort of a relaxed way. So we, we thought, well, an unconference would be the best way to do this. And that's how Open Data Camp was founded. And that was 2014. So now, six years ago, and we've done quite a few of them. Fantastic. And how many people did you get to one of those? So the uh, we, we have actually records for attendance. And the, the highest record was in uh, Belfast. We we'd run Open Data Camp in Belfast. We had about 120 people, if I recall correctly. Mm. That was amazing. You know, also the, the big advantage of uh, being reachable by, by two countries. So, you know, people from both the UK and the Republic of Ireland attended. Uh, it was uh, quite a good, a good event. But we had over 100 attendees also in Cardiff. Despite the terrible weather we had that weekend, yeah, we, we had 88, I think, in uh, in Hampshire, in Winchester, a uh, lovely place to run an unconference. But yeah, it's been quite well attended. And what kind of people come to these events? Are they all government people or, or do you get a broader mix of people? Ah, well, there's, there's a few, like, uh, generalist people who are, in like, overall geeks. We have a good participation for people who are involved in OpenStreetMap, for example. So people who come from different aspects of, of open data, whether they are, you know, they might be people working with, with councils, uh, you know, uh, GIS managers in councils have been a, a constant feature of OpenStreetMap, oh, sorry, of uh, Open Data Camp. Uh, we had geeks, we had developers, we had people interested in policy. We had uh, academics like, you know, you know, Bob Barr, for example. Mm -hmm. We had at one point Paul Moldy, uh, who was at the time director of the uh, government data program. Uh, he came there. I mean, we always uh, recall this sessions where everyone attended those sessions and we, we called them the 
and conference and keynotes, uh, <laughs> and uh, they were particularly successful. I mean, and I think that that was really good. We also had the permanent secretary attending in Belfast, which was quite uh, an interesting thing uh, to see. So yeah, uh, a variety of, of people have, have attended over time. But importantly, you've got interest from some fairly senior people in government and government technology. Absolutely. What What's interesting to see is how. Uh, although the uh, you know open data might not be high up in the in the agenda at the moment, I mean there's a number of other things that happened uh, in, really? uh, after the uh, <laughs> well yes <laughs> quite a few over the past three years. <laughs> but what's interesting is that the people who firstly engage with open data have somehow uh, understood that there's a, a better analytical way of going about things, policy making in operations and all that. Um, and, and I think that the conversation that were sort of uh, initiated by the open data movement have been have made quite you know, a, a lot of road in, inside government. And, and that's really good. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about open data for a minute. You and I have spent many, many evenings with a glass of beer in our hands talking about open data and uh, the things we agree on. And I suspect the things we disagree on. But most of the time we agree. So start off explaining what you mean when you refer to open data. Well, what I mean, open data, you know, there is a quite well-known and very broad definition by the Open Knowledge Foundation about open data being uh, data uh, coming from whatever source that is generally machine-readable and attached to an open license. Um, but you know the uh, the different uh, facets that that definition can acquire are very very different. I mean, in government, we generally mean data that's been released under the open government license. So uh, I would say what, what I refer to open data is normally data that is somehow openly accessible. Um, for me, open data is mostly uh, public sector data, although right. even that uh, you know is on a spectrum. So that there are. You know, the, the quangos, some, some of the quangos release interesting data. So is that government data or not? Uh, hard to tell. But um, there, there's, I think there are two ways of seeing open data in general. It's, um, say, the two ways are, on one hand, data that is published because of a transparency requirement. So, for example, data around government expenditure. And on the other hand, there is data that comes from running certain operations or, or data that uh, you know pertains to a specific type of task. So, for example, if we think about Met Office data, that would be the type of ops data that I'm thinking of. Uh, and these two concepts, you know, transparency and operations, um, somehow uh, engage over time. And there are different parts of the open data community who, are, who care about different aspects of them. And uh, you didn't mention accountability, but I mean, I think within the open data community, sort of the, the people who are outside of government, but who are often advocates for openness, accountability is a very, very big factor for them, the ability to hold government to account. Maybe slightly different to transparency? Well, yeah, because you, you can't take public authorities into account by not just seeing uh, the, the way they're spending money, but uh, the way they, they run the operations. Now, I shouldn't be getting into too much into this the discussion, uh, given my um, current employer. Yep. But um, I, I think it's fair to say that there are many ways we can monitor uh, activities of a, any public authority. There is one major aspect of open data, I think, that's the, the way we engage with open data has evolved over time and the the maturity uh, of the open data movement you know it, it is evolving as well 
Um, so there are aspects that, you know, at the beginning of the open data, you know, when, when Charles Arthur and The Guardian were doing you know, the, the free out data campaign, we're probably thinking around, you know, government has data, they need to publish that data um, no matter what. But over time, you know, we, we also started to, to think about uh, ethics, uh, about trust. Uh, and there are all concepts that are in evolution. And, you know, the recent coronavirus crisis has probably produced a certain spin in that discussion as well, uh, where we're seeing, you know, for example, the South Korean government tracking people with apps without too much of a Resistance. controversy around that. While, you know, in, in Europe, no one is doing that because the, the approach we have to, to trust and ethics is, is like different. So there are also uh, regional variation to uh, to that discussion and, and i think that's what makes it very very interesting and uh, it, you know open data is not a as i say a complete thing it's something that evolves together with uh, the the needs of people on the ground it evolves with events like pandemics for example uh, and it evolves with uh, technology as well so uh, 10 years ago we didn't have facial recognition for example we, we now have it and that clearly changes a little bit the, the perception we, we have around data releases in many ways. You know, you, you probably have seen a few years ago, I did this uh, uh, entertaining thing about calculating the average phase of, of member of parliament. <laughs> you know, it went viral. You know, I had quite a lot of fun doing that. But now, uh, you know, I'm sort of thinking, is that ethical? You know, is it ethical to have a, a laugh based on you know, the average phases of people who are elected and who are therefore... A reflection of, of an entire nation. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying it isn't, but this is a question that now I'm asking myself that when I did that, I wasn't asking myself. And yeah, uh, those questions uh, will you know evolve over time. Personally, I think that a lot of the ethical issues are more linked to technology than to whether data is open or closed. You know, I mean, the fact that we can now use AI or whatever to completely fabricate video that we can then broadcast, you know, is a much bigger concern to me than somebody playing around with uh, government open data and possibly crossing an ethical boundary. You know, I mean, I think that the technology is, is sort of moving the boundaries at a, the most enormous pace at the moment. It, it is, uh, and but you know, it, it's all about. I think the uh, the principles clearly. You know, probably the, there aren't many government datasets that will cause that sort of you know excitement uh, as you know uh, the technology uh, behind generating faces. But you know, I wouldn't be surprised if 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 we found out in a few years' time that data has has been sort of misused to to do that. I mean that. that I think the problem is that we we don't know, and we need to be ready to to ask new questions as they as technology evolves. Uh, and you know, we, without also believing the hype. Uh, I mean, now we we both remember that you know, there was a time where every single problem of society uh, we thought it could be solved with uh, open data, and you know, we we sort of now realize it's more complicated than that. A lot more complicated than that. And, uh, you know, I think in the current coronavirus crisis that we're going through, you know, there's been a flood of tech and data people coming out with 
their own ideas of how to solve the problems and how to deal with distancing and reporting and whatever else. And, you know, I mean, some of these apps, I was looking at a couple this morning before we got on this call, you know, and some of these apps just aren't being used by anybody, you know. Loads of people do loads of work to produce these things and nobody actually gets to use them because because they're useless, you know, and I think there is a... Well, we could, we could go back to that question, of the, the classic GDS question, which yeah. is, you know, what's the user need? And yeah. I think there is an understanding that the situation of coronavirus has evolved so quickly that, you know, it's been really hard to produce fast responses based on, on data. Like, you know, we've seen the, the various, for example, mobility indices produced by uh, the CityMapper, the Google, the, uh, the MoveIt, you know, all, all those apps very very useful to see that people are not traveling that much uh, and and clearly that you know in, in the first phase of the crisis it was very important to 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 verify you know whether the the lockdown measures were working i mean i've seen the same in in, in italy you know where luckily the the rates of infections have, have gone down massively uh, a couple of weeks after lockdown so you know sort of confirming that the lockdown was working but now we are in a phase where, you know, we might not know when life will get back to normal. I mean, we, we're seeing all this fantastic press conferences every day. I'm, I'm really interested. And aside from my from my work, it, it's interesting to see how government is now using data on a daily basis to uh, uh, to respond to, to journalist questions, which is something, you know, uh, absolutely, I think, positive, regardless of, you know, yeah. uh, of people's position on whether we're doing uh, good or bad. But at the same time, uh, yep, go ahead. The only problem that I see with government using data to respond to journalists' questions is when they pick and choose what data they're using. Well, I can't possibly you can, comment on that. No, but. you can't. You can't, but I can. You know, I mean, I think <laughs> yeah, there is a data set which, if you sample it, will prove almost anything that you want to assert. You know, and um, I mean, it was interesting how long it took for the ONS data on weekly death rate to be brought into the conversation. So now we're, we're talking about excess deaths over the five-year rolling average of excess de of deaths in a week. I think it's fair to say that this stuff is really hard. Mm. And, you know, the scientific consensus around what data is more important has been evolving as well. I mean, mm. you've probably read the uh, fantastic articles written by David Spiegelhalter, you know, who has highlighted that problem about the way deaths are recorded in different countries uh, and therefore how difficult it is, for example, to compare uh, countries ba based just on, you know, COVID recorded deaths. I think that that's very important. I mean, uh, um, once again, it's not about uh, politics. It's more about the fact that there is a lot of uncertainty, uh, even when data is recorded according to the, the current procedures we have. So, yeah, I, I think I, I'm still quite positive and, and you know, happy to see that data is being used. At the same time, going back to what I was saying about the user need, the actually the the ways we, we will respond to this crisis over time clearly uh, will change. You know, like in Italy, for example, they're talking about the phase two now. I mean, my parents have been in lockdown for about six weeks. They're now, you know, seeing the, the light at the end of the tunnel. But we're still talking about a pandemic for which there is no, uh, you know, clear therapy. Uh, and therefore, or, or vaccine, you know, we, we don't know uh, how long that will be before before something like that is available. And therefore, we, we need to start thinking, you know, what would be the best way 
to keep monitoring the way people travel, people move, you know, in, in a scenario in which we, we need to get back to life more or less as normal, uh, what that, how big that more or less is, is going to be relevant. And therefore, you know, we might find ourselves in a situation where we actually want to, to measure social distancing in a park. How do you do that? You know, do you send people with 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 a ruler, or do you use you know CCTV cameras to you know to identify faces? You know, I've done a bit of that uh, for fun uh, about identifying faces in photographs, and it's not perfect. No, no, no system is perfect, and you know the degree of uncertainty uh, is going to be one problem. The other problem is going to be trust. You know, will people be happy to see people with a ruler? Will they be happy to see CCTV cameras? Uh, and, and you know, once again. The those you know, the relationship with that evolves with time, evolves with the nature of the problems trying to solve. You know that that, that the concept of the Overton window that we're yeah. using politics to you know th there is an Overton window of technology used by governments uh, to address societal challenges. Yeah, uh, and therefore we need to be you know looking at that. The one thing I'm sure about data is that no one has become rich with open data. Uh, and, you know, uh, <laughs> That's <laughs> you just touched on one of my favourite subjects because if we go back, you know, 2009, Gordon Brown and Tim Berners Lee, you know, there were there were three there were three four planks to to the open data movement. You know, there was transparency, there was accountability, there was innovation, that people would find new ways of doing things, improve service quality and all of that. And then there was this belief that um, opening up data would unleash some enormous creative talent and um, new businesses would start. And it, you know, people were saying, six billion pounds worth of economic benefit from open data. If only we'd had, if only Ordnance Survey's data had been freely available to everybody, Google would have been created in the UK, not in America. I mean, it was, I mean, to me, it was bullshit, as you, you know, and I was outspoken continuously about that. But you, know, you remember, I was on the other side of all of this, and, and I, I was, you know, using all, all of this, if only, uh, then over time, you know, you realize that there were too many if onlys uh, in that discussion. And I, I still think that, you know, certain data sets should be made open. I understand that the challenges to do that sometimes are really hard. You know, there are legal problems, you know, that there was that famous situation with uh, land registry releasing the price paid data set, fantastic data set, by the way, mm. uh, under OGL. Uh, and then only realizing that the you know there the, the were addresses in there and the addresses were clearly not under OGL. I mean, there are complications in there that it's really hard to uh, to deal with uh, without massive investment to begin with. Uh, and, and therefore, the question is: Is it right to spend the money to to, to do to, to spend public money to do that, or should we spend money on something different? You know, there was this old uh, attempt, for example, at creating an open addresses uh, database. I, I remember that I was part of the the panel that assigned money to that project, and you know, it was exciting. We learned a lot about that, but at the same time, uh, we also learned it's very hard to to make uh, a business out of uh, something like uh, a new open addresses dataset. So yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't think that. Open data in itself is a way to to run massively successful businesses. But you know, you know better than me that success in business is determined by the ability to 
innovate and sell a new thing to people rather than you know it, it doesn't come for free just because there's a data release yeah and i still maintain that if your if your business proposition is really strong it probably can afford to pay a commercial rate for any data resources that it needs you know i mean that one could argue what a commercial rate is but you know i mean i don't I've never thought that um, people needed free data for everything to build a business. You know, it's not much of a business if it can only run on free data. But let's, just before we leave open data, you've been doing this for 10 years now. If you had to sum up the state of open data today, how would you sum up the state of open data today? So I think there's one thing to be said. So Open data is still important, and it's still important for me in the original meaning of more transparency, more openness, because it's a way for governments to really engage with with populations. And although we might not, you know, think that that's being at the moment particularly important in, in the Western world, uh, open data is still a big thing in in countries, you know, outside our, our sphere. In many countries, in uh, you know, Latin America. There are huge you know, civic technology organizations working on open data. It's becoming big in Africa. So you know, the, the, the other problem with open data is that often the uh, Western world-centric view of, of the importance of open data in countries that maybe you know, had already an established democracy or, or something like that. You know, okay, it, it, made thing, it can make things better, but at the same time, there are parts of the world where you can literally change the way citizens engage with with their government and their authorities. And, you know, we've seen some of that. You know, we, we were discussing uh, previously when we were doing the, you know, Tarifa project with, with Mark Eilif, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, in, in, a, in Islam in Tanzania, having the ability to, to share data about uh, toilet location uh, is, you know, probably a matter of life and death, while... Having a, 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 a database of public toilets in the UK, well, it's a nice to have. It's something, you know, where, yeah. you know it's not particularly, it will, not, it will not save your life as much as you want to think about that. <laughs> so I, I think it's really important to, to lose that. I mean, I, I'd like to, you know, to, uh, on this, to mention my friend, uh, Moore Rubinstein and uh, Tim Davis, who, who actually um, edited this fantastic book called The State of Open Data, uh, which is available in, in a free form on the web. I'd really like everyone to, to have a look at that because uh, you find out there's so much happening with open data outside of our Western world spheres. Okay, we'll put the link of that, Giuseppe, in the show notes that go with this um, with this episode. Just one final question on open data, which is that you've been head of data at the Department for Transport for a year. Without going into anything that is restricted, tell us what does head of data at DFT do and what's that role mean? Well, it's a new role. And I mean, it was new when when I started. And and basically, I, I was asked to set up the data team. Um, The Department of Transport didn't have a central function to support a variety of work streams we we are dealing with in in the data space. And you you know that the department, for example, uh, publishes official statistics, many of them based on data. There are data-driven projects like things like bus open data. We have street manager. There's a variety of work streams happening in that space, but there was no central function to support them. So what I've been doing over the past now, uh, I think it's 15 months, 16 months, something like that, time flies when you're having fun. Uh, so we started from one member of staff, we're now about 10, we are 
uh, sort of trying to understand how to support the whole life cycle of data. So I have three small units reporting to me. One is doing uh, internal transformation. So then we, we have a couple of product owners slash delivery managers. I have a technology team working on mostly data engineering problems. I have a small policy slash commercial unit trying to provide a link between uh, the policy making and commercial opportunities for the department and outside. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very broad, very generalist. I, I do like being a generalist. So, you know, this in, in a sense was a dream job when, when I saw it. Uh, I'm also working on um, a transport data strategy, uh, which, uh, funnily enough, there is a video of me talking about that a, at a conference in October, I think it was. Uh, and, you know, I, I made promises about the publication of that strategy without thinking that uh, an election was coming up, a reshuffle was coming up, and then a, a pandemic was coming up. So <laughs> the other thing I've learned over the past year is that you need to be ready to deal with uh, whatever is thrown at you. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's not nice things. COVID was entirely unexpected and it, it sort of delayed my work on, on the data strategy. But once again, uh, it's really interesting to see a department like DFT putting data uh, centrally in, in its agenda. So it's been an exciting ride so far, and you know I'm hoping to to keep doing that for a bit. And can you share any examples of how DF, the products and outputs from your data team have been utilised during the coronavirus crisis? I'd say that's still too fresh to uh, to discuss. Okay, but I have members of my team working on uh, on response, right. uh, and, and, and yeah, that's very interesting. And looking forwards, you know, going forwards a few years, what would you like to see being your achievements as head of data at DFT? Speculation. I, I'd like to see better discoverability of transport data to begin with. Uh, I'd like to see, you know, more solid approach to policymaking. That not, that's not just DFT. I mean, I, I think data analysis needs to be central in policymaking. I'd like to see uh, a better approach to data sharing between different parts of the public sector. I mean, sometimes it's really hard to to work with, you know, agencies, uh, local authorities, because, you know, each organization has its own goals, its own challenges, and its own approach to data. I mean, it, it's clear to me that uh, a policy-driven department like mine uh, doesn't have the same worries about organizations that store a lot of personal data, for example. And, and, and therefore, you know, it, it, we, we need to work quite hard to understand how to, to bring forward a situation in which we can make better use of data while maintaining the public trust. And, and luckily, I mean, there is a very good team at DCMS now working on the national data strategy where some of this project, some of these problems are being uh, looked at uh, from a more, you know, holistic point of view. So, yeah, that, that's, I think, the future for me. The, the other thing is, on the side of my job, is to, hopefully, to to lose that pervasive phrase that the data is the new oil, which I, I don't like. <laughs> I, mean, I always do this job. Whenever someone tells me, data is the new oil, I sort of respond a cheeky way by saying, no, data is the new olive oil, <laughs> because to get value out of it, you need to squeeze really, really hard, and most of it will be incredibly bad quality. Um, so yeah, I, I hope people will understand that. Okay. Uh, and, you know, uh... So let's park open data and let's just jump to OpenStreetMap, which is open data as we know, but um, it's geographic data that's crowdsourced and the data set that 
it produces as an open data set which anybody can download, analyze, visualize, use to produce new products. And recently, you shared a hobby project which you'd been working on where you thematically mapped city road networks according to the road descriptors, i.e. whether it was a street, a road, a close, a hill, you know, those bits that come at the end of a road description. Can you explain what you did and why? So, first of all, I mean, that, that's not, you know, my original idea. Other people have done that before. I think Erin Davis was the first to do that based on, on R. There are people who've done the same, uh, the same piece of work based on uh, QGIS and, and shapefiles. So what I found fascinating was the idea that that same piece of work could be replicated in a, in a sort of automated way uh, using a, a very good library, which I've used before for projects called OSMNX, um, which is a Python library uh, that a, uh, an academic uh, called Jeff Boeing has developed as part of his PhD thesis. So uh, this guy is an incredibly talented academic in, in the US, had to run as part of his PhD in geography a set of network analysis of, of roads. And as a, a side effect of doing that, he didn't find any easy to use software to analyze uh, OpenStreetMap data. Uh, and he developed his own and released that to, to the public with an MIT license, which I, I think is, is an incredible thing to do. It, it's, it's very nice. It's, uh, it's progressed the uh, open source slash open data agenda. Um, so yeah, when I saw what he was doing with, with this software package, um, I said, hmm, that, that software package could be used to do the same road coloring which I'd seen others doing. And a part of the reason why I try... So I'm, I'm, it's funny that some people think I'm a create, creative developer. I'm not creative at all. I, what I like is replication and automation. Uh, and I like sharing things in a way that people can uh, then take my code uh, and, and replicate it. So I'd say, you know, coaching people to use data and, and you know, advancing uh, data analysis is one of my vested interests in, in all of this. So what I did right. was simply to create a Jupyter notebook. So it's a fully replicable set of, of procedures, basically that just take uh, the uh, the data out of OpenStreetMap and, and produce the, uh, the drawing of, of the road coloring. What's very interesting about this uh, is two things. I mean, when you say OpenStreetMap uh, to people who are not part of our community, they think that OpenStreetMap is sort of the, you know, the um, Google Maps poor cousin, where actually, if anything, it's Google Maps rich cousin. So the OpenStreetMap is not the map, it's the data that powers that map. And the fact that you, you, know, you can create that data in many ways, OSMNX is one way to do so, is, is absolutely great. And, you know, you, you can do that on any, you know, I, I did that, that analysis on my laptop uh, and it, it's, it's pretty powerful, I think. So I was a bit cynical. You know, I, when you first shared the first map, I looked at it and I was a bit cynical. What's the point of this? So you can color the roads, big deal. Yeah, we all know you could do that. You know, I mean, you could do that in QGIS, you can do it in lots of ways. But I've recanted now completely you know i'm i mean let me publicly say on this podcast i was wrong and you know i've seen and and other people have pointed out that there are some really interesting insights coming out of coloring these map 
colouring the roads according to their names. Can you share some of that with, with our listeners? So what's interesting, I mean, I, I have actually a collection of links of people who have responded to me with their own maps, and I, I will share that afterwards. Um, but what, what's really interesting, I think, it, it's, it's a dual aspect of this. So first of all, I like the fact that there is data underlying a map uh, and you know the, the query can be done in ways that you, know, you, you can basically just highlight very simply on a map uh, some feature. Uh, the other thing is is you know the aesthetic aspect of all of this. I think it's you know I, I love maps and you, you probably do as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a few friends who love maps. Uh, there is a, a certain pleasure in in seeing uh, a a map take life um, automatically. Now, the the, the most recent uh, result of all of this has been a, a friend a journalist of mine, Duncan Gear, who's uh, actually currently based in in Gothenburg, um, and he's both a plotter and he's asked me to send him the uh, SVG files from a few of my maps. And what he's doing is basically doing live streams on YouTube of his plotter drawing uh, my oh. maps, which is absolutely mesmerizing. It, you know, it, it's incredible. I spent like an hour looking at this plotter drawing the map. So I, I think there, there is a, a certain uh, part of the community which is really attracted by the, the simple beauty of, of maps. So that's one thing. Uh, the second, the other thing is clearly, as you say rightly, the insight that those maps can produce. Now, what I did once again was simply to put together a set of, you know, a very simple replicable pipeline to do that with whatever location you like. And what I really enjoyed was to see people starting to use my Jupyter notebook to, to do location I, you know, I couldn't think of uh, and, you know, discovering different patterns. And what's really interesting is, you know, Kia Clark did um, this before me, I think, you know, you probably that's where you you sort of pivoted to, to being a supporter of the idea <laughs> about investigating, you know, the history of, of how... I don't think it was um, a pivot. Cities were built. It wasn't a pivot. <laughs> it was a complete U-turn. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. And I mean, and that was great to me because what I saw there, you know, Kia, Kia didn't use my, my code. It just used an entirely different set of procedures and processes. But, um, you know, the, the common aspect there is that you can discover things about the history of your place. And there's this... A famous idea that there are no roads, I think, in the, in the city of London, uh, which is actually just half true because I think half of Goswell Road actually belongs to the city of London, right. technically. Right. Uh, but there are reasons why that was. And you know, people can discover those things by just looking at a graphic representation of, of location, which basically that's what a map is. And, and just to sort of articulate that, that pattern, for our listeners, it appears that certainly in an English context, cities, as cities evolved, we had streets in those cities and roads were the things that joined clusters of habitation up. So the roads joined cities, basically, and city centres were streets. And gradually, the other suffixes like way and road and avenue all evolved over time and if you look at um, these beautifully colored maps what you can see is a visualization of how the city of city evolved over time being displayed through the road suffixes yes and it's something that you find a lot in uh, in british uh, cities but not elsewhere like you know once again i started looking at italy thinking oh i'm going to do all these beautiful maps of italy but it turns out that the way um, cities were built in Italy 
you know, in many cases, you have this pervasive via as, you know, qualifier of a, of a street name, um, in part because that's the most common way, uh, and it's way more common than, to say, street or road in English, uh, but partly because many cities were bombed, and when they were rebuilt, you know, the, 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 the roads changed completely names, and, and via was the, the most popular suff suffix at the time. What I'm trying to look at now is basically uh, older uh, cities. Like, you know, we have a couple of walled cities in Italy and, and see if there's any uh, difference in that. I mean, there's a few places which uh, still have roads called strada, so which is the equivalent of street, but uh, which in Italy is normally used for older uh, roads. And at the same time, I have a few friends who are based in, uh, in Finland and, and Sweden who started doing that uh, with the local uh, suffixes, which is interesting because you have similar uh, patterns to the British pattern in terms of, like, I can't remember exactly what's the word because clearly my Swedish and Finnish are uh, not particularly advanced. <laughs> as to say they are, they are probably uh, null but it, it's very interesting to see the, you know, the, the same thing happening in different places what's really interesting is also uh, in places that have for example uh, a bilingual community or trilingual community which is something you find in um, in uh, certain valleys on the Alps uh, between Italy and Austria or Italy and Switzerland uh, there are valleys where there's a Romance community so they, ha they will have roads with Italian, German and Romance name uh, and all this is fascinating because, you know, it, it can give an insight of how uh, different communities maybe refer to those streets because those streets normally will have the same name translated, but sometimes they won't. So, yeah, it, it's absolutely interesting to see um, the different cultural aspects of this. Uh, what, once again, the, the, th the reason why I've released that code is one because, you know, I, I like to advance the uh, <laughs> data analysis in a geographical context, especially. Uh, and one thing that I think is possible with that code is basically to just apply the coloring to any feature. Uh, and once again, OpenStreetMap uh, has a very rich uh, layer of data uh, that can be used for, for that coloring. And, and of course, the, the other aspect of all this is that that data can be linked to other open data sources, which is one of the uh, important aspects of open data. Uh, and therefore, you know, the coloring would basically take any any direction. There were people in Amsterdam who did something similar using the age of the buildings because there is a, a full cadastral data set uh, right. with, with right. that information. And, and that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So you're now selling high quality prints online from from some of these city maps, I gather. So. Um, Maybe you could give us the... Once again, uh, that didn't make me rich. So open data uh, doesn't make people rich. I can confirm that. But I have sold a few. Yeah. Uh, everything is, is a bit quiet now because uh, Royal Mail deliveries are uh, not particularly uh, quick at the time of coronavirus. Uh, they, they have a few uh, serious issues. But yeah, it was interesting to me the, you know, the, to see the, the full life cycle of having an idea, using data to implement it, uh, and then produce a physical product out of it. And I think that's been absolutely brilliant. Great. And we'll put the link to where those maps are in the episode notes at the bottom. So, Giuseppe, my final question for you, it's the question we ask all of our guests on the Geomod podcast. What were your, sorry, you've been a regular at Geomob, I think, right from the beginning. Certainly, I met you at one of the very earliest Geomobs. What have been your favorite moments? Give me a couple. 
So I have a few. Um, I actually, I did a talk at, the, at GeoMob about something called the Open Data Delusion, mm-hmm. which at the time I remember shocked a few people. Like, you know, like, oh, they, they, everyone thought I was this uh, open data fanboy, which clearly am. But, you know, I, I, I like to do that talk in which I was seeing things from a different perspective. But when I gave my talk, there was a guy from Oregon Survey called Chris Weston, so Chris Weston yeah. who did this fantastic talk about mapping Mars. Oh, and to me, that was a great moment because that's where I realized that, you know, you can map pretty much everything. Yeah. And, you know, and once again, there is a bit about uh, the geeky um, data-driven aspect of producing the maps alongside uh, an aesthetic quality of those maps. So that was probably my favorite talk ever uh, at GeoMob. There are other two moments I'd like to mention, uh, <laughs> mostly for their sort of emotional attachment. So my first GeoMob was actually the second GeoMob ever, yeah. uh, which I think, or maybe, uh, I, can't, I can't remember if that was the first one I attended, but definitely one of the first, in which a certain Gary Gale yeah. uh, spoke about yeah, yeah, Yahoo Placemaker. Uh, and once again, oh, fantastic stuff about, you know, location and, and data uh, on the web at the time you know i think this was probably 2009 or 2010 so very uh, quite a long time ago uh, yeah. and yeah i mean then i mean now we're you know i'm friends with gary and it, it, it's great that you know i i think the other thing about jamob has been the community aspect i mean now i have uh, developed a few friendships out, out of that so I, I really enjoyed it uh one other yeah. moment I'd like to mention, which I always like to mention, is the fact that City Mapper was introduced at Geomob at the very beginning. And right. I do remember a certain Stephen Feldman saying, but what's the business model of this? How will you make money? And I, I sort of think uh, that's, that's still a problem. <laughs> yeah, they've had tens of millions of pounds worth of investment, but I'm not certain that they've yet found the profit point. But who knows, maybe they will do. Giuseppe, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. If people want to get in touch with you, how should they get in touch with you? Uh, many ways. So, I mean, probably I'm one of the few people with my name. So if you Google my name, will probably find me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Pontefissa. I also have a weekly newsletter, which has been going on for now eight years. It was actually the anniversary yesterday of my... Uh, so I, I basically send this weekly newsletter with things about data, maps, data visualization. And I can commend it to everybody who's listening. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, and otherwise, I'll, as soon as we are allowed back into um, uh, full uh, outside activities, uh, probably a GMOB would be the best way to meet me. Great. Giuseppe, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much. Speak soon. Speak soon. Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GMOB podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.